Section 11 of The Theory of the Moral Sentiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Christopher. The Theory of the Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith. Part 2, Section 3. Introduction and Chapter 1. Part 2 of Merit and Demerit, or of the Objects of Reward and Punishment Consisting of Three Parts. Section 3. Of the Influence of Fortune upon the Sentiments of Mankind, with regard to the Merit or Demerit of Actions. Introduction. Whatever praise or blame can be due to any action, must belong either first to the intention or affection of the heart from which it proceeds, or secondly, to the external action or movement of the body which this affection gives occasion to, or lastly, to the good or bad consequences, which actually, and in fact, proceed from it. These three different things constitute the whole nature and circumstance of the action, and must be the foundation of whatever quality can belong to it. That the last two of these three circumstances cannot be the foundation of any praise or blame is abundantly evident, nor has the contrary ever been asserted by anybody. The external action or movement of the body is often the same in the most innocent and in the most blamable actions. He who shoots a bird, and he who shoots a man, both of them perform the same external movement. Each of them draws the trigger of a gun. The consequences which actually and in fact happen to proceed from any action are, if possible, still more indifferent either to praise or blame than even the external movements of the body. As they depend, not upon the agent, but upon fortune. They cannot be the proper foundation for any sentiment, of which his character and conduct are the objects. The only consequences for which he can be answerable, or by which he can deserve either approbation or disapprobation of any kind, are those which were some way or other intended, or those which, at least, show some agreeable or disagreeable quality in the intention of the heart, from which he acted. To the intention or affection of the heart, therefore, to the propriety or impropriety, to the beneficence or hurtfulness of a design, all praise or blame, all approbation or disapprobation of any kind, which can justly be bestowed upon any action, must ultimately belong. When this maxim is thus proposed, in abstract or general terms, there is nobody who does not agree to it. Its self-evident justice is acknowledged by all the world, and there is not a dissenting voice among all mankind. Everybody allows, that however different soever the accidental, the unintended and unforeseen consequences of different actions, yet, if the intentions or affections from which they arose were, on the other hand, equally proper and equally beneficent, or, on the other, equally improper and equally malevolent, the merit or demerit of the actions is still the same, and the agent is equally the suitable object either of gratitude or of resentment. But how well soever we may seem to be persuaded of the truth of this equitable maxim, when we consider it after this matter an abstract, yet when we come to particular cases, the actual consequences which happen to proceed from any action have a very great effect upon our sentiments concerning its merit or demerit, and almost always either enhance or diminish our sense of both. Scarce, in any one instance perhaps, will our sentiments be found, after examination, to be entirely regulated by this rule, which we all acknowledge ought entirely to regulate them. This irregularity of sentiment, which everybody feels, which scarce anybody is sufficiently aware of, and which nobody is willing to acknowledge, 
I proceed now to explain, and I shall consider first the cause which gives occasion to it, or the mechanism by which nature produces it. Secondly, the extent of its influence, and last of all, the end which it answers, or the purpose which the author of nature seems to have intended by it. Chapter 1. Of the Causes of this Influence of Fortune The causes of pleasure and pain, whatever they are, or however they operate, seem to be the objects which, in all animals, immediately excite those two passions of gratitude and resentment. They are excited by inanimated as well as by animated objects. We are angry, for a moment, even at the stone that hurts us. A child beats it, a dog barks at it, a choleric man is apt to curse it. The least reflection, indeed, corrects this sentiment, and we soon become sensible that what has no feeling is a very improper object of revenge. When the mischief, however, is very great, the object which caused it becomes disagreeable to us ever after, and we take pleasure to burn or destroy it. We should treat in this manner the instrument which had accidentally been the cause of the death of a friend, and we should often think ourselves guilty of a sort of inhumanity if we neglected to vent this absurd sort of vengeance upon it. We conceive in the same manner a sort of gratitude for those inanimated objects which have been the causes of great or frequent pleasure to us. The sailor who, as soon as he got ashore, should mend his fire with the plank upon which he had just escaped from a shipwreck, would seem to be guilty of an unnatural action. We should expect that he would rather preserve it with care and affection, as a monument that was, in some measure, dear to him. A man grows fond of a snuff-box, of a penknife, of a staff which he has made long use of, and conceives something like a real love and affection for them. If he breaks or loses them, he is vexed out of all proportion to the value of the damage. The house which we have long lived in, the tree whose verdure and shade we have long enjoyed, are both looked upon with a sort of respect that seems due to such benefactors. The decay of one or the ruin of the other affects us with a kind of melancholy, though we should sustain no loss by it. The dryads and the lares of the ancients, a sort of genie of trees and houses, were probably first suggested by this sort of affection, which the authors of those superstitions felt for such objects, and which seemed unreasonable if there were nothing animated about them. But before anything can be the proper object of gratitude or resentment, it must not only be the cause of pleasure or pain, it must likewise be capable of feeling them. Without this other quality, those passions cannot vent themselves with any sort of satisfaction upon it, as they are excited by the causes of pleasure and pain, so their gratification consists in retaliating those sensations upon which gave occasion to them, which it is to no purpose to attempt upon that which has no sensibility. Animals, therefore, are less improper objects of gratitude and resentment than inanimated objects. The dog that bites, the ox that gores, are both of them punished. If they have been the causes of the death of any person, neither the public nor the relations of the slain can be satisfied unless they are put to death in their turn. Nor is this merely for the security of the living, but in some measure to revenge the injury of the dead. Those animals, on the contrary, that have been remarkably serviceable to their masters, become the objects of a very lively gratitude. We are shocked at the brutality of that officer, mentioned in the Turkish spy, who stabbed the horse that had carried him across an arm of the sea, lest that animal should afterwards distinguish some other person by a similar adventure. But though animals are not the only causes of pleasure and pain, but are also capable of feeling those sensations, they are still far from being complete and perfect objects, either of gratitude or resentment. 
and those passions still feel that there is something wanting to their entire gratification. What gratitude chiefly desires is not only to make the benefactor feel pleasure in his turn, but to make him conscious that he meets with his reward on account of his past conduct, to make him pleased with that conduct, and to satisfy him that the person upon whom he bestowed his good offices was not unworthy of them. What most of all charms us in our benefactor is the concord between his sentiments and our own, with regard to what interests us so nearly as the worth of our own character, and the esteem that is due to us. We are delighted to find a person who values us as we value ourselves, and distinguishes us from the rest of mankind, with an attention not unlike that which we distinguish ourselves. To maintain in him these agreeable and flattering sentiments is one of the chief ends proposed by the returns we are disposed to make of him. A generous mind often disdains the interested thought of extorting new favors from his benefactor, by what may be called the importunities of its gratitude. But to preserve and to increase his esteem is an interest which the greatest mind does not think unworthy of its attention. And this is the foundation of what I formerly observed, that when we cannot enter into the motives of our benefactor, when his conduct and character appear unworthy of our approbation, let his services have been ever so great, our gratitude is always sensibly diminished. We are less flattered by the distinction, and to preserve the esteem of so weak or so worthless a patron, seems to be an object which does not deserve to be pursued for its own sake. The object, on the contrary, which resentment is chiefly intent upon, is not so much to make our enemy feel pain in his turn, as to make him conscious that he feels it upon account of his past conduct, to make him repent of that conduct, and to make him sensible that the person whom he injured did not deserve to be treated in that manner. What chiefly enrages us against the man who injures or insults us is the little account which he seems to make of us, the unreasonable preference which he gives to himself above us, and that absurd self-love by which he seems to imagine that other people may be sacrificed at any time, to his conveniency or his humor. The glaring impropriety of his conduct, the gross insolence and injustice which it seems to involve in it, often shock and exasperate us more than all the mischief which we have suffered. To bring him back to a more just sense of what is due to other people, to make him sensible of what he owes us, and of the wrong that he has done to us, is frequently the principal end proposed in our revenge, which is always imperfect when it cannot accomplish this. When our enemy appears to have done us no injury, when we are sensible that he acted quite properly, that, in his situation, we should have done the same thing, and that we deserve from him all the mischief we met with. In that case, if we have the least spark either of candor or justice, we can entertain no sort of resentment. Before anything, therefore, can be the complete or proper object, either of gratitude or resentment, it must possess three different qualifications. First, it must be the cause of pleasure in the one case, and of pain on the other. Secondly, it must be capable of feeling those sensations. And thirdly, it must not have only produced those sensations, but it must have produced them from design, and from a design that is approved of in the one case, and disapproved of in the other. It is by the first qualification that any object is capable of exciting those passions. It is by the second that it is in any respect capable of gratifying them. The third qualification is not only necessary for their complete satisfaction, but as it gives a pleasure or pain that is both exquisite and peculiar, it is likewise an additional exciting cause of those passions. As what gives pleasure or pain, either in one way or another, is the sole exciting cause of gratitude and resentment, though the intentions of any person should ever be so proper and beneficial on the one hand, or ever so improper and malevolent on the other, 
Yet, if he has failed in producing either the good or the evil which he intended, as one of the exciting causes is wanting in both cases, less gratitude seems due to him in the one, and less resentment in the other. And, on the contrary, though in the intentions of any person there was no laudable degree of benevolence on the one hand, or no blamable degree of malice on the other, yet, if his actions should produce either great good or great evil, as one of the exciting causes takes place upon both these occasions, some gratitude is apt to arise towards him in the one, and some resentment in the other. A shadow of merit seems to fall upon him in the first, a shadow of demerit in the second. And, as the consequences of actions are altogether under the empire of fortune, hence arises her influence upon the sentiments of mankind with regard to merit and demerit. End of Section 11 Recording by James Christopher JX Christopher at Yahoo.com